0: Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Would you give your full attention to the reading of God's living and active Word? The Word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong? Did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land, to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you, when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Inhabitant, pardon me. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tophanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt? to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners." and after them I will go. As a thief is ashamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, You are my father, and to a stone, You gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, Arise and save us, But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise, if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, we are free, we will come no more to you? Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well you direct your course to seek love, so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in, yet in spite of all these things you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring to you judgment for saying, I have not sinned. How much you go about changing your way, You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it too, you will come away with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust and you will not prosper by them. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me? My Father... You are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, indeed, your word is a lamp to our path. It is our light. It is that bread, that food for our souls. And Father, we ask that you would now give us eyes to see the glory of Christ in the text before us. Give us ears to hear your word, that we might not be hearers only, but also doers. Change our hearts, we pray. Grant us hearts of meekness and humility, that we might receive your word by faith and profit by it. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved, this morning we continue our new series through Jeremiah. Last week, after introducing the book, we began in chapter 1, you remember, with the Lord's call to Jeremiah to serve as his prophet during the reign of King Josiah in 627 B.C. It was the last year of King Josiah's reign. At that time, Jeremiah was still a young man, And it was a tumultuous time in the land as there were many power shifts happening. Jeremiah continued his prophetic service for the next 40 years until the fall of Jerusalem during the reign of King Zedekiah in 587 B.C. You remember in chapter 1 and verse 5, the Lord told Jeremiah that he was appointing him to be a prophet not simply to his own covenant people, not simply to Israel and Judah, but a prophet to the nations. And so while Jeremiah's prophecies are most directly about Israel and Judah, they also involve all the nations and thus are a demonstration of God's absolute sovereignty over His entire creation. As the Lord tells Jeremiah in chapter 1 in verses 9 through 10, Behold, I have put My words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day Over nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. He then confirmed his call to Jeremiah through two visions in which he highlighted the infallibility and inevitability of his word, the very word that Jeremiah would prophesy. In our text for this morning, we find the Lord taking the role of a spurned husband who is faced with the difficult task of bringing his case against his adulterous wife as he sues her for divorce. And in this difficult word of judgment from the Lord, we see the great grace and compassion of God set in contrast to the utter wickedness of our sin, particularly the sin of idolatry we'll divide our text into four sections, four sections. The first, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where we see recalling the honeymoon. The second, chapter 2, verses 4 through 13, we see presenting the charges. The third, chapter 2, verses 14 through 37, where we see providing specifications to support the charges. And then the fourth, chapter 3 and verses 1 through 5, where we see planning The divorce. So let's begin in that first section there, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, where we see the Lord recalling the honeymoon. Look again at verses 1 through 3. The text says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. In verse 1, we encounter the same phrase that we found in chapter 1 in verse 4, namely, the word of the Lord came to me. The word of the Lord came to me. This is a phrase that gets repeated throughout the book of Jeremiah. It signifies a particular historical moment in which the Lord sends His word to Jeremiah That Jeremiah might then turn around and prophesy that word before whichever audience, whichever people God sends Jeremiah to. And in this case, the audience, the audience is the people of Jerusalem, the citizens of Jerusalem. Now, last time we learned in chapter 1 and verse 1 that Jeremiah was a Levite, and more specifically, a son of Aaron from the priestly city of Anathoth. Anathoth was situated just three miles northwest of Jerusalem. And so the Lord is now calling Jeremiah to leave his hometown and to go up to Jerusalem in order to preach his word in the hearing of the citizens of the city. Of course, Jerusalem was the most important city in all of Judah. It was the cultural and religious center of Judah. It was the capital city of Judah. It was the royal city, the city of David, where Judah's kings had lived and reigned for centuries. David's son Solomon built the temple, the house of the living God on the summit of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so after his call to Jeremiah in chapter 1, Jeremiah Jeremiah is afforded no honeymoon period to kind of get his feet under him as a prophet of God. The Lord throws Jeremiah immediately into the deep end, so to speak. He doesn't send him to some small town out in the wilderness to preach his word. He sends him to the very center of all the political, the social, the religious activity in Jerusalem, where the greatest teachers of God's law, so to speak, greatest in quotes, lived, where the priests served, at the temple where the king lived, the man who could speak the word and have Jeremiah executed on the spot. The Lord sends Jeremiah to the heart of it all, to Jerusalem, to proclaim in the hearing of all Jerusalem a hard word. A word they are not going to want to hear, a word of judgment against them. But he begins that word by reflecting on the good times, on the good times, saying, I remember, I remember, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. In a land not sown. And so the Lord appeals to a marriage analogy, describing the relationship of his people to him as a bride to a husband. The time to which he now refers is the time of her youth, the time in which her love for him was new and vibrant, the time when her devotion to him was still very strong, the time when she followed him in the wilderness. Of course, he's pointing his hearers back to the time of the exodus. When after redeeming them from Egyptian bondage, he covenanted with them at Mount Sinai through the ministry of the prophet Moses. That was the time before the divided kingdom. And so the Lord doesn't refer to the citizens of Jerusalem as Judah, which is what they would have called themselves, but he refers to his people here as Israel. He is looking back to the early time. He says Israel. Israel was holy to the Lord. In other words, she was consecrated. She was set apart from the world to the Lord. In this we see an allusion back to Deuteronomy chapter 7 in verses 6 through 8 in which he taught his people through Moses saying, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. There's the doctrine of election. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's not because you were more in number than any." other people, that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Israel was set apart to the Lord because the Lord unconditionally chose to set them apart unto Himself from all eternity. She was, as the Lord now says, the first fruits of His harvest. Now that's an interesting language for the Lord to use there. To call Israel the first fruits signifies that there is even more harvest to come. And so even now at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, we see the Lord in his initial words prophesied through Jeremiah to God's people in Jerusalem. We see the Lord signaling the fact that he has a longer term purpose in view. That longer term purpose becomes more and more clear as we make our way through the book. And of course, it culminates in Jeremiah's prophecy about the new covenant in which the Lord will gather the nations. Unto himself, And thus we see that while His harvest begins with Israel, they are His first fruits, so to speak. It extends ultimately into the whole world. Nonetheless, while the Lord was gathering Israel as His first fruits, any nation that came to eat of Israel, any nation that, that came against Israel, to, to fight against Israel, He says, incurred guilt and disaster came upon them. In other words, what the Lord is saying is He was a faithful husband who truly loved His bride Israel such that He not only nourished her but He protected her. He protected His young bride from her enemies. He protected her from evil But how quickly things changed. Look at chapter 2 and verses 4 through 13 where we see the Lord presenting His charges. Look at verses 4 through 5. The text says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? and went after worthlessness, and became worthless. The Lord now transitions from reflecting upon the good old days, the time of the honeymoon, so to speak, to bringing His case against His adulterous wife. He is not at fault. He has not been unfaithful to her in any respect, but she has been unfaithful to Him. But notice how he begins. He begins simply by calling her to hear him. Hear the word of the Lord. Of course, it's been her refusal to hear him that's led to these divorce proceedings in the first place, which is why he asked the rhetorical question, what wrong, what wrong did your fathers find in me? Of course, the assumed answer is none. None. The Lord was a perfectly faithful husband to His bride Israel. He nourished her. He cherished her. He loved her with a perfect love. And yet she went far from Him, He says, after worthlessness, which is another way of saying idolatry, and thus became worthless. She became like the gods she worshipped. Beloved, In this, we see the nature of sin, and we're going to see that throughout Jeremiah's prophecy. One of the great treasures God has given us in the the prophecy of Jeremiah is a robust analysis of the nature of sin. It's important for us to know the enemy if we're to defeat the enemy. None of us can defeat the enemy on our own in our own power, in our own wisdom. We need the Lord to teach us about our enemy. We need, need the Lord to empower us to defeat this enemy. And that's part of what we see throughout Jeremiah's prophecy. The Lord loved her, but she went after worthlessness. His bride Israel thus became worthless. Worthless. Sin blinds the eyes and dulls the mind. It disorders the affections of the heart to the truth that God is the source of everything good and ultimately goodness itself. So that the lie, the lie that you can have something truly good Ultimately good and finally satisfying, apart from God, becomes believable and even more desirable. But sin is ultimately worthless. And left unchecked by God's grace, it leads to spiritual bankruptcy, making the one who pursues it worthless along with it in the long run. Look at verses 6-8. through The Lord continues, They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, You defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. So the Lord now condemns Judah's idolatrous fathers. But notice this, beloved. Don't miss this. What does he condemn them for. He condemns them for their impenitence. Though they fell away from him for a time, he stood ready to receive them unto himself again. He sent his prophets to them like Jeremiah to warn them and to call them to repentance. But they refused to ask, where is the Lord? In other words, they refused to seek after the Lord in order to be reconciled to Him through the forgiveness of sins. And so, though the Lord was generous to them, though the Lord gave them a land flowing with milk and honey, a land filled with good things, yet they squandered all that He gave to them, defiling it and making it an abomination. In other words, making it a center of idolatry. But not only did the general population do this, the Lord says even the priests who He had set apart for His service at His temple, at His house, they too did it. They too refused to ask, where is the Lord? They became ignorant of the Lord's Word and they trusted in themselves and their own wisdom along with the shepherds. That is, the elders and the kings, as well as the prophets, who the Lord says prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit, from the least to the greatest. We're going to see that phrase repeated when we get to the prophecy of the new covenant in chapter 31. From the least to the greatest, the majority of the people within the land, the majority of God's covenant people turned away from Him into abject apostasy. Look at verses 11 through 13. The text says, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the Lord now comes to His point. He brings His charges against Judah. Like a skilled lawyer, He once again asks a pointed rhetorical question. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? What's His point? Well, the irony of this question is thick. Essentially, what he's doing at this stage in his argument is he's comparing Judah to her pagan neighbors. He's saying, look, your pagan neighbors are more faithful to their false gods than you have been to me, the one true and living God. Indeed, what Judah has done after having been given so much is so astounding that the Lord calls the heavens which have witnessed all of it, to be appalled. To be appalled. To be utterly shocked and utterly desolate because of it. And then he presents two charges. Two charges against his people. First, and most importantly, they have forsaken him, he says, the fountain of living waters. And second... Because they've forsaken Him, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, this is a very powerful image, or imagery, beloved. Living water is water that flows. It's water that's clear and clean. It's like the, the waters of, of Mount Hermon that, that flow from the, from the, uh, the snowmelt clear and clean. It's like the waters that bubble up from the ground, clear and clean. It's water that's suitable for sustaining life. In contrast, the water that might be collected in a cistern, which was typically a small reservoir hewn out of stone, was quite different. It was water that was collected by runoff. Runoff from roofs, where dust collected, run off from the ground. It typically sat in the cistern and stagnated over time. And often cisterns would crack and leak, and so they would no longer hold water. Such water was, water was suitable in a pinch, but only after it had been boiled, only after it had been treated. But it was never preferable. No one in their right mind who had a spring of living water on their land bubbling forth would ever go to a cistern in order to get their water. Nonetheless, through the blindness of their sin, Judah had turned away from the fountain of living waters in order to gather stagnant water from cisterns. As we'll see in our series through the Gospel of John, which will continue this afternoon. Jesus identifies Himself, you remember, in chapter 4 of John's Gospel, as He speaks to the woman of Samaria at Jacob's well, He identifies Himself as the fountain of living water. And the living water to which He refers is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God. Just as natural life depends upon water for its survival, so spiritual life depends upon the Holy Spirit. And here's where we see the fundamental problem. God is going to, as He does in this chapter, point to various evidences in the the visible realm. You've done this, you've done that, you've done this. But ultimately the problem is the heart. The heart. The majority of Judah in Jeremiah's day were unconverted. They were not born again. Their hearts hadn't been changed by the Spirit of God. They hadn't actually tasted the living waters that flowed from God. And so they thought they were actually being nourished by the foul water they were gathering from the cisterns of their own idolatry and sin. What the Lord is saying to His people through Jeremiah here is that they have left behind the source of all life. They have turned away from Him. And the only thing One can turn toward, when he turns from God, the source of life is death. And so the two charges the Lord brings are related to one another. The first is they have turned from Him. They have committed idolatry. The second is they they have turned toward others. Toward others, other powers like Egypt, like Assyria, like Babylon. Moving on now to the third section, chapter two, verses 14 through 37. we find the Lord providing specifications to support these two charges. Look at verses 14 through 19. He continues, "Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant?" Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tapanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself? by forsaking the Lord your God when He led you in the way? And now, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you. Again, there's the heart issue. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. So, the first specification the Lord brings is the way Israel has turned to foreign powers for her prosperity and her security. And so, again, the Lord asks a pointed rhetorical question Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? That's what Israel has acted like for the last several decades. As it has turned to Assyria for protection. To Egypt for protection. They turned to anyone but the Lord. But what they didn't understand is that they were playing around with predators. Like children who think lions are cute... Playing around, you see them frolicking at the zoo. But if your child gets close to the fence, you're going to hold on to them, aren't you? The lions might look cute, but if the child falls into the lion den, they'll be consumed. And don't miss that, beloved. Sin may appear to be harmless even enriching, but it never is. Sin is a predator. Sin is a predator. It seeks to steal. It seeks to kill. It seeks to destroy. And that's what Israel's sin did to her. As she pursued her security in Assyria, as she pursued her security in Egypt, she was consumed. She brought it upon herself, thinking she would gain life by drinking of the Nile, the water of the Nile. Maybe gain life by drinking of the water of the Euphrates, but all those waters could yield was death. Ultimately, the Lord says, the fear of Him was not in her. In other words, by and large, Israel's population remained totally depraved, so that ironically... Back to the question the Lord just asked. They really were slaves. They really were slaves. This is the the subtleness of sin, beloved. Sin, Sin will tell you, here is freedom. Go do this. Be free. But what it's really doing is enslaving you. The Apostle Paul teaches this quite clearly in Romans chapter 6. You remember, he asks, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But then listen, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, totally depraved, have become obedient from the heart. See, the heart is the issue. To the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So the question God asks at the beginning of this little section, chapter 2, verse 14, is Israel a slave? I mean, initially the focus is on a slave to Egypt, a slave to Assyria. But really... The answer is yes. They're not slaves to Egypt, not slaves to Assyria. They are meant to be the free sons of God. But they are slaves to their sin and therefore have become slaves to Egypt, slaves to Assyria. Look at verses 20 through 25 he continues for long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds but you said I will not serve yes on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore yet I planted you a choice vine holy and pure seed of pure seed how then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap the stain of your guilt is still before me declares the Lord God. How can you say, I'm not unclean. I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness. In her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need to weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, It is hopeless for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. So the second specification the Lord brings is that of idolatry. The Lord once again looks back to the time of the Exodus, reminding His people about the way He broke the yoke of slavery from their necks and burst their bonds from their hands. But though He freed them from Egypt, they remained enslaved to their sin and thus refused to worship the Lord, saying, I will not serve. Nonetheless, though they refused to serve the Lord, they did serve somebody. They served other gods, specifically the fertility god, Baal, through ritual prostitution. And so when the image of the Lord's bride bowing down like a whore appears in the text there's more there than a mere analogy but her uncleanness is not merely skin deep it's in her soul thus no matter how hard she can scrub her hands she may scrub her hands she can't actually remove it the lord moves in his description of her from that of a prostitute To that of a wild vine, to that of a wild beast. There's a kind of movement backward, a kind of decreation that happens, a a becoming becoming beastly in one's in one's actions, likening her to a young camel and a wild donkey in heat, unable to restrain her lust, such that he gives herself, or she gives herself to any would-be suitor. And again we see the nature of sin, don't we, beloved? Israel says, I will be free. I will serve no one. And how does she find herself at this point? Serving her lusts. The lusts of her flesh. She's like a donkey in heat. Verse 26. Looking again at the text. The Lord continues, As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth, for they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise, if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah." So, the third specification the Lord brings is that of impenitence. Thieves are really ashamed. They are really, or pardon me, rarely, I should say, they're rarely ashamed before they're caught. Before they're caught, they're happy, they're self satisfied, they think they're getting away with their crime. But when they're caught, shame overtakes them. And so the Lord says, it will be with the house of Israel. They've behaved like thieves in making gods of the trees and the rocks. But when the hard times come, they cry out to the Lord for deliverance. But their sorrow is not a godly sorrow leading to salvation, but a worldly sorrow leading to death. The Apostle Paul speaks of that distinction in Second Corinthians chapter 7, saying, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Thus, the Lord demonstrates their impenitence, their hard-heartedness against Him in the way that they think they can manipulate Him in hard times. The way that they think we can make gods for ourselves out of the trees, out of the rocks, we can worship other gods, but then when hard times come, we can go back to the one true and living God, and He'll get us out of it, you see. So they're treating God like a machine that can be manipulated. Again, you see the issue is the heart. Look at verses 29 through 37. The Lord continues, "'Why do you contend with me? "'You have all transgressed against me,' declares the Lord. "'In vain have I struck your children. "'They took no correction. "'Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. "'And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord.'" Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, we are free? We will come no more to you. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well you direct your course to seek love. So that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in. Yet in spite of all these things you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying I have not sinned. How much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it, too, you will come away with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust, and you will not prosper by them. So the fourth and final specification the Lord brings in support of his charges is that of self-righteousness. And this is where it's important to remember where Jeremiah is as he preaches this message. He is in Jerusalem. The temple is in Jerusalem. Though the Old Covenant Church at this time was in an estate of abject apostasy, yet they continued to pretend as if they worshiped the Lord. They worshiped Him among other gods. They were happy to worship whichever God might help them, including the Lord. And so they would come to the Lord's house and offer up the sacrifices and think, everything's okay. It's okay as long as I offer up this sacrifice. The Lord, the Lord won't remember my sin. He won't remain angry. And then they would turn and go and worship Baal with the cult prostitutes. Their religion was a religion of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness which is where we find Israel in the days of Jesus' public ministry, you remember. What Jeremiah is doing, preaching judgment in Jerusalem, where the temple is, is very much like what Jesus did in His public ministry. As He went to the temple, cast out the money changers, and confronted the priests and the scribes who were set apart, to lead God's people in worship and yet didn't know the Lord. They didn't know the Lord. They claimed to be worshiping at the temple. Obviously they didn't or They would have recognized Him when Jesus walked up to them. Right? He is that Lord. And so the Lord says, why do you contend with Me? Why do you contend with Me? You may come to worship at My temple Thinking that we are in reconciled relationship, that I'm receiving your worship, but actually what you're doing is you're contending with me, is what he's saying. They are fighting against him. They are transgressing against him. Though he has sent his word to them to correct their children, they've remained unteachable They refuse His correction, though He sent His prophets to wield the sword of the Spirit for their salvation. They have raised their swords in order to put the prophets to death. The Lord asks one last rhetorical question, saying, Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Have I been a wilderness or a land of thick darkness? With this question, he's, he's recalling the way he began his case back in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3. The Lord redeemed Egypt from the wilderness, from a land of thick darkness. He brought them into his own land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But the land wasn't really about the land. He himself is ultimately the land of his people. We see that primarily in the inheritance of of the priests. What land did God give to the priests? Very little. Very little. Why? He was their inheritance. He was their land. And so when he says, have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? He's saying, as you approach me at this temple to worship me, as the priests enter in to intercede on behalf of the people to mediate these covenant blessings to my people, have I become a wilderness to them? Am I not their inheritance anymore? Am I not a land flowing with milk and honey for them anymore? He himself is ultimately the land of his people. And he is a good land no matter what they might think about him. His people have behaved as if he is a wilderness to them. They have sought to redeem themselves from him. They've sought sought to, to get out of him. If you're in the wilderness, you typically don't want to be there for long. You want to get out. You want to get back to to a good land. And that's what God's own people are doing as they approach Him for worship. This is a kind of anti-exodus that's happening in Israel and Judah. And it's been happening in Israel and Judah for generations leading up to Jeremiah's day. And it will eventually come to a head when the Lord pours His judgment out upon them and sends them into exile. They have sought freedom from Him, not realizing that slavery to Him is the only true freedom. And though their guilt is evident to all, yet they claim to be without sin. They are righteous in their own eyes. And thus the Lord promises that they will be put to shame by those who, those who have trusted, in whom they have trusted, namely Egypt and Assyria, their sin will find them out. Look at verses three or chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We see planning the divorce. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me my father? You are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done All the evil that you could. Again, remember where Jeremiah is. He's speaking to a people in Jerusalem who most likely have just been in the temple worshiping the Lord. That's what he says. Have you not just now called to me, my father? You're the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? You've spoken, but you've done all the evil that you could. The Lord reaches the conclusion of the matter. He knows his bribe will not turn back to him. He knows that he must execute his judgment against her. He knows that any movement she might make toward him is a farce because he knows their hearts. He knows their hearts. While their lips may say all the right words from time to time, their hearts remain far from him. And that's essentially the problem. Their hearts remain far from Him. They need the work of the Lord in their hearts to change them. And beloved, that work only comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the fountain of living waters. Remember what He told the Samaritan adulteress in John chapter 4. If you'd have known who was asking you for a drink of water, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Water that would have bubbled up in your soul to eternal life. And so I ask you this morning, are you drinking of that living water? Have you tasted the living water that only God can give? Or have you hewn out cisterns out in the world storing up treasure on earth thinking this will satisfy this will satisfy that will satisfy when in fact none of those things can satisfy but only the Lord. I call upon you this morning to come to Christ. He stands ready to receive all who will trust in Him. And he is that fountain of living water. And if you taste that water, you can never go back. The cistern won't satisfy anymore. You may go back to it for a moment, here or there, in moments of weakness, and the Lord will discipline you for it. But he will change your spiritual taste in such a way that you can't forget the living water. And this is his grace. To sinners like us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the warning that we receive through it. We thank you for the analysis of sin that you give to us, your people, through this historical moment in the life of your old covenant church. And Father, we pray that you would help us to take it to heart and that you by your spirit would work within us, that we might drink deeply of that fountain of living water, not hewing out cisterns for ourselves in the world, but drinking of that living water from this day forth and forevermore. We give you praise for it in Christ's name. Amen.